Are you ready? This might be up a little loud. Are you, now I need to turn it back up a little bit because there's a filter. <laughs> Thank you for that physical humor gag. I'm ready. <laughs> Hello and welcome to, oh, what are we going to call it? Is it like Witch Please Season 2? How long can I go? That's it. No. Okay. That was impressive. Hello and welcome to season two of Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. have a new numbering system for season two guaranteed we're gonna need somebody to invent a new series of numbers so that we can number these these episodes fuck we'll think of it but uh we are doing things a little bit differently for this season so over the past few months marcel and i have been um traveling around and recording some conversations with some interesting harry potter fans who we've met in various ways. So the first four episodes of this season are going to feature conversations that we had separately with people that we met on our various travels. And here's the format that you are going to encounter in these next few episodes. We're going to start off um, with this t- this tight, seamless introduction <laughs> where we... <laughs> tight. Where we tell you a little bit about the context of these trips and what we were doing and the people that we met. And then we're going to segue you over into the, uh, the conversations and then we'll, and then we'll come back to say goodbye to you. So stick around to the end because we have a fun new feature coming up at the end of these new episodes. Also, you may notice that Hannah and I are in the same room. We will be in the same room for some of these episodes. That's awesome. (laughs) This is the new sound effect. It's just me snapping my fingers with my whole body. (laughs) Yeah, so Hannah and I are in the same room, which is amazing because we hardly ever get to be in the same room anymore. Sometimes we're going to be in the same room and sometimes we're going to be via Skype as we have been in the past. And which one we will be on a given day is going to be a mystery. So you can tune in to find out. Also, um, we're currently drinking this red wine that tastes a little carbonated. So you're, yeah, right? Yeah. Tastes a little bit like red wine soda pop. I thought it was just because I was hungover, but it's not. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's still, it's, it's a mystery wine, but that's fine. So this first episode, we've decided that for these, um, these first four episodes that are about our various exciting travels, uh, we're going to go in chronological order. Um, so the first event that, uh, you were going to hear about was my visit to London and my attending uh, Cursed Child live with London-based books journalist Anna James, who, listen, she's a big deal and also a very kind and generous person. 
and managed to help me get my hands on some tickets to the cursed child and came to it with me and uh we had really good seats and when we got to see some theater um and i'm gonna tell you my number one takeaway was i don't know if you know this but theater's really good i know right no wait i feel like this needs to be qualified okay good theater <laughs> is really good I feel a little bit like when I was reading The Cursed Child and we were talking about it and I was thinking about it, I sort of had forgotten how good, good theater can be. What are some things that stand out to you as representative of what made the production good? The first thing, and and you're going to hear Anna say this, but the first thing that really stood out is that the script actually hasn't changed much. Like I sort of anticipated there being more revisions between the version that we read and the version that's on the stage it's very similar but the actors are so good that they're selling some of the jankier lines like there's still some lines in there that you're like that might not be the best written line but the actors are just like everybody is full on in those characters so the the cast is remarkable in all kinds of ways one of the things that again sort of seeing it live really reminded me of is how big theater can be um you can take emotions to a much higher pitch than you can really pull off like you know the naturalistic mode of acting we expect in most movies these days means that emotions need to be small and internalized and subtly registered via twitchy faces and or like ryan gosling's long quiet stares I was just thinking, I was like, or Casey Affleck's Long Quiet Stairs, right? It's like so much of great acting is like a white man staring in total silence into the distance. But like we love it when white men are silent. So let's not discount the value of white men's silence. (laughs) Let's celebrate that. I'm glad they're silent. I just wish I wasn't having to look at them so much. (laughs) Could they be silent and also not on the screen? That would be great. Are we asking for so much? (laughs) So the, the guy who played Harry Potter, for example, I've forgotten all of their names. When he has those like Voldemort nightmares, like he wakes up screaming and the emotional impact of having a real life human on a stage in front of you actually screaming at the top of their lungs that's intense Mm -hmm. that's a level of intensity that like i just don't think you get in any other kind of experience well and especially because you're you're in the room with him right so i'm curious we do this thing when we when we teach drama to first years where we sort of explain what the fourth wall is mm. and breaking the fourth wall mm. and how the fourth wall is a new thing because in Shakespeare's time there was no fourth wall people just like threw shit at the actors on stage and the actors had to act around it yeah. but now you go into a theater and the actors just pretend that you're not there mm. was this that style of theater where like we just imagine that you are in the room with Harry and Ginny as Harry is having nightmares. Is it that level of intimacy or is it like, I think what I really want to know is, did you forget that you were sitting in a theater watching this happen? That's so interesting because, so I'm going to answer your question sideways, which is um, later on in the same week that I saw this, I went to the globe with my friend Helen and saw Romeo and Juliet. And like, you can't put on a sort of naturalist fourth wally 
production in the globe. It doesn't work in that space. Like that kind of theater presumes a particular shape of actual room people are watching it in where everybody's looking at, at the stage from the same angle and the globe theater on the round like it yeah. just like you can see other people in the audience yeah, yeah yeah like you can see everybody you can all see each other and you can't see a lot of the stage depending on where you're sitting and so that like the romeo and juliet production we saw was so spectacular in the sense of like it was spectacle it was loud and over the top and yeah, like during the balcony scene, Romeo was like in the crowd with the groundlings, which is you can get really cheap tickets at the Globe where you just stand at the stage level. And so like Romeo was just there walking through the crowd saying like, excuse me, sorry, sorry, excuse me. Like it was exactly that, like not even breaking of the fourth wall, just the fourth wall. It doesn't exist. Yeah, there's no such thing as the fourth wall. And I would say that there was something in The Cursed Child that was almost more like postmodern, almost more Brechtian in the sort of the way that it was picking up on the naturalist expectations of theater and then pushing them a little bit in some interesting ways. So the stage setting itself is not a naturalist setting. It's very interpretive. It's very gestural. Like, you know, it's a black stage and there's, it opens up the opening scene is in, um, platform nine and three quarters so there's some sort of arches that represent the fact that you're in a train station and some suitcases and then those arches and those suitcases along with a couple of movable walls and staircases become the sort of major props and when it's time for it to be a new scene some extras in hogwarts robes come out and move some stairs and now you're in a different scene so it's very like this is theater you are looking at theater. We are not trying to make you feel immersed in it. But simultaneously, you're not there. The actors never acknowledge you. They never break the fourth wall. In fact, I felt like the way that the production was trying to situate the audience was as witnesses. So, you know, Brecht's critique of naturalist theater was that it lets you sort of be a passive viewer. You're not implicated in the action on stage. And he wanted to sort of bring the audience in and make them feel politically implicated in what was happening. And I felt emotionally implicated in what was happening. And that came to a real peak in, um, there's going to be just a bajillion spoilers in this. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in five, four, three. Two, one. But that scene right at the end where Voldemort arrives and Harry and his family bear witness to Voldemort killing Harry's parents. And what happens is that they all come to the front of the stage, right up against the edge of the stage. Voldemort walks down the stairs through the audience and out the back. And everybody on the stage, all of the actors are watching something that's happening behind us. And we have to watch them watching it, which is hard. It is really hard. And there was this really interesting thing that happened where people in the audience were turning around and trying to see something that wasn't there. And so it felt at once like, 
I know I'm not in this scene. I know I'm not here, but I feel like I am part of what's going on right now. And I feel like something is being asked of me as a member of the audience. Would you go again? In a second. Yeah, absolutely. Anna, it was her third time seeing it. And she was like, yes, it is still good every time. Like it's going to continue being a production in London for years and years and years and years and years. Like they'll just keep changing the cast. So, okay. When we were reading it, I remember we were talking, I think we were talking a little bit about how we would be interested to see a Hermione who experiences racialization come out a little bit more clearly as opposed to just like, oh, Hermione happens to be black and her job is complicated because it's a complicated job. Like one of our critiques of the of the books in a lot of ways was like, it imagines a world where racism qua racism doesn't exist because we metaphorize racism through house elves. Yeah, so I'm curious how that plays out live on stage. I didn't see it. Like, I didn't see any additional attention to sort of the racialization of Hermione as a character. But there might be things there that are not necessarily legible to me or that I would catch on a on a reviewing. One thing I will say is that I remember reading the play and thinking that Rose Granger Weasley was sort of underserved as a character, that we don't get a ton of her. And... um there is more of her in the play in the same way that there's more of a number of characters, including Ginny, because there's a whole bunch of scenes where people are on stage but not speaking, but still doing interesting things. So, for example, there's a scene where it's the scene after the second time they've changed time, I think. Um and uh, they have been caught and McGonagall is, is sort of reaming everybody out and sort of explaining what happened and like Rose was gone. Like you essentially killed somebody. And this isn't in the script, but on the stage, there's a whole bunch of Hogwarts students um, like listening in on the conversation. And there's this moment after everybody else has cleared out where you see like Rose sort of steps down off the stage and it's her sort of grappling with the like, I, I didn't exist. I was written out of existence and Hermione sees her across the stage and it's a totally silent scene where it's like this moment of them making eye contact and like coming to terms with what that actually meant and then like come across the stage to each other and embrace and um, it's just a really stunning scene that gave you just in that moment, a sense of like Hermione's relationship to her daughter and how much she loves her children, which it's not really in the script. In the script, it's mostly sort of Ron is the parent and Hermione is the career woman. Um, and that I found that moment incredibly powerful of like sort of the mother and daughter's exchange, unscripted, but still very present. This is really interesting and really points to a number of ways that writing and releasing a script for a play that was still being workshopped is complicated because so okay so at the beginning you were saying that the script is relatively similar it didn't change a lot but the blocking very clearly changed a ton and it sounds like there are like almost whole scenes that get left out of the script because they either hadn't been blocked or there's no reason to include it because you can't capture it 
in language. And so it made me think of how um, a friend of mine is taking uh, a writing workshop or, and, uh, and a writing course. And we were talking recently just about the like, the things that you would never think about unless somebody was explaining to you how writing a, a novel works. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, we learned the other day that you don't advance plot through dialogue. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. And we were both just like, of of course, yeah. of course. And this is exactly what you're talking about. That yeah. moment between between Hermione and Rose is a moment you can't, there's no point in capturing that transformation or like recognition or whatever mm-hmm. in dialogue. It would be so like, it would be so schlocky and, and gross. Yeah. But you can have this really powerful silent moment, mm-hmm. which is just all blocking yeah that's awesome yeah there are many more moments like that that you're right absolutely invite the question are those things that you always knew were going to happen but it didn't even make sense to try to write them in because they're so performance based or are they things that they wanted to add in later but they felt like we can't really add in tons of new dialogue because the script's out there in the world so we're going to add stuff in via just sort of blocked scenes or unspoken scenes or there's dance sequences there's some beautiful dance sequences you know what it makes me think of is um and it reminded me of um Hamilton which is you know the other sort of big cultural phenomenon of the last couple of years and uh Lin-Manuel Miranda has talked about how important it was to him that the studio recording the cast recording be really really good but that he deliberately left one really important song out of it because he wanted there to still be something that was special about the live event. And there's this song in Hamilton where Aaron Burr is talking about what it's like to be left out of politics and power. And he sings about how he wants to be in the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I and it's still it's about like this proximity to the thing itself that like there is just something irreplaceable about actually being there rather than having something communicated to you after the fact and it's so like I'm still sort of really wrapping my head around that uh in an era when content is free when we expect content to be free people are still willing to pay for events but the democratic promise of the internet which is that we can all participate in things no matter where we are the event precludes that you can't like you have to be in a place to participate in an event and cursed child is a remarkable performance and it's like by its very nature deeply exclusionary most of the people in the world will never be able to see it this makes me think a little bit about my friend nikki's phrase of i think 2015 mm-hmm. which was can it be both <gasps> what you're saying makes so much sense that there is always going to be some kind of exclusion mm-hmm. but that also something is lost when you don't save anything special for the inclusion and not everyone can participate in all the things mm-hmm. And that maybe that's okay, and that the problem is when people can't participate in any of the things, Mm -hmm. and when we don't take seriously the things that people can participate in, or we don't see those things as, like, real or legitimate or good enough or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because, like, 
I will never be able to attend the London Witch Please meetup that you had. And you know what? That sounds like it was amazing. And I had a little bit of FOMO leading up to it. But as I tweeted, everybody seemed like they had such an incredibly glorious time that I don't feel like I don't feel bitter about having missed that. I'm really glad that it happened. And I I think that what I would like in the world, if I may utopianize (laughs) this conversation, if I may wax utopia for a moment, (laughs) wax utopic, wax utopic. I would like to live in a world where so many profoundly beautiful things are happening and so and everybody gets to do things that are special and remarkable to the degree in which when you hear about a beautiful thing or an or an empowering thing or a profound thing that happens that you couldn't go to, you could never go to, you would never go to whatever instead of being sad about that, you're just so happy for those people. I think that's the world that I want to live in, not a world where like everything is for everyone or everything is only for the rich and powerful. I want something better. Like meeting interesting people and having conversations with them is not an experience that's premised on scarcity. It's an experience that's premised on on plenitude. Like proximity. Yeah. Yeah. There's always going to be more interesting people to meet, and maybe you won't meet those people, but you'll meet other amazing people. Uh, fuck, what was I going to say before I took this microphone? <laughs> Anna James is a radiantly beautiful person, and you should all seek out everything that she writes, including her forthcoming book. Tell me about Anna James. You're going to splice that and put it right before what you said. Uh, all right, are we ready to hear the uh, conversation that I had with the uh, glorious and statuesque Anna James? I'm ready. <gasps> do, 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 do. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anna James. Uh, I'm a writer and a journalist. And I basically have a very unexplainable job, but I do lots of things to do with books. Yeah. Books, a professional books things doer. Yeah. yeah. Basically, I'm a professional reader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, professional reader sounds sounds like the dream that like what academics would like to pretend we actually are yeah. when we're actually professional paperwork completers. Okay, so Anna and I we are recording from a beautiful sunny flat in London and a couple of days ago we went and saw the Cursed Child live. Thank you to Becca at Pottermore. So we are going to chat today about our experience of watching the Cursed Child live. Let's get started. Okay so you have seen this three times. Oh my goodness yeah. Yeah so why three times? (laughs) Um, Well the the honest answer is that I love stuff and I have a super addictive personality. <laughs> and I saw it for the first time and I was just like, I just need to see it again. Also, the awkward thing about a show that's in two parts and that isn't particularly cheap and is only in London is it is actually something that really rewards multiple viewings. Um, yeah. And I just felt like I live in London. Yeah. Why not? Why not just go and see it as many times <laughs> as I can? I just feel like I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna regret seeing it again. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the the eventness of this thing right so this is a show that's obviously deeply appealing to harry potter fans all over the place and it's something that like 
you're located in London. You can go to it multiple times. Lots of people will never be able to see this show. Right. Why? You're J.K. Rowling. <laughs> you are deciding what the next thing you're going to do in your franchise is going to be. Why make a lavish, beautiful, permanent theatrical production in a city that most people in the world will never go, never go to? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. Wild speculation is all we do on this podcast. Never research. Never check if you're right. Just come up right. with opinions. I'm there with that. Because yeah. I think the thing when you see it that is so obvious is how obviously it was conceived as a play. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some cyn- cynicism from people who've just read the script that it is just, you know, it's just a money-making thing. But you, when you see it, this is created by people who love theatre and it is created as as a show. Yeah. I feel like, was there not, I don't know, again, <laughs> wild speculation. I feel <laughs> like I feel like I read something that maybe the producers, like I think she'd been approached, had she, by people. And yeah. so clearly people were encouraging this to happen. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think it was, it wasn't her idea, like I'm going to experiment with theater. It was like, some people approached her and were like, we have this idea. Mm. And the thing when, when I got back to the, the flat of the people I'm staying with, the first question I got about it was, you know, so does it make sense as a play or does it just feel like another movie put on stage? It's profoundly a play. Oh my goodness, yeah. Because it was really interesting being able to watch you watch it because, you know, I listened to the episode where you talked about the script and I'm obviously like very aware of the way people have talked about the script and a lot of, and I totally understand so many of the frustrations, but when you see it on the stage, so many of those things just melt away. And it's just, there's not to say it's perfect. And a lot of the frustrations in the script, you know, that's still the script, but there's so much to love about it as a performance yeah Yeah, there's so there's two things there that I want to talk about at some point I want to talk about the script and why the script is the worst part (laughs) why I want to I was like you're gonna have the best time because the script is it's the worst bit of the show everything else is flawless and this is a like it I there's this little part of my brain that can't help but go a little conspiracy theory about how bad the script is um (laughs) That feels like, so, you know, I've been chatting with a lot of people about events as the sort of quote unquote solution to the quote unquote crisis of publishing and how the event produces something that can't be shared for free online because the event by its very nature is sort of live and immediate and non-reproducible and all you can get, all you can buy is mediations of that event and like signs of that event, the sort of souvenir-esque things that let you go back to that but in the same way that you can't reproduce travel via a souvenir Mm -hmm. you can only remember it so the willingness to sort of release the script feels to me not so much like here's something that if you can't make it to the show you can still enjoy it it feels more to me like um look how totally the script does not reproduce the experience of the show and you know when you actually when you said why have I gone to see it multiple times I haven't read I read the script once when I got it just out of interest but I haven't I'm not interested in rereading the script it's an experience what I want to go I want to go in I don't want to hear those words like the words are mediocre the experience though it's addictive and magical Mm -hmm. and that's what I want to experience again and again yeah yeah I spent 
almost the entirety of the like what like six hours of this production with my mouth open yeah. <laughs> like, it's really it's really so I just kept being like what there were so many moments where you like I could just see you turn to me being like what did, did, like did you see that did you see that and I was like yeah I see, I see. this is why I'm coming again yeah did you see that they did a magic on the stage <laughs> let's talk a little bit about sort of the quality of the production first so I don't know do you see a lot of theater in London yeah I, a fair amount yeah. I would say so like tell me on the scale of like London theater is this like a sort of over the top flashy production is this well it's interesting it's interesting isn't it we talked a little bit about this in the interview like flashy because it's it's incredibly impressive Mm -hmm. and obviously expensive but it's quite old school in many ways Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of again this is horribly spoilery but there's not a lot of um kind of fancy high tech it's not a high tech show. There's a lot of like people on stage doing clever things. There's a lot of very physical magic and just feels very old school in many ways, despite being obviously a very modern and fancy and expensive experience. It's unlike anything I've seen on stage before, but partly because, you know, like I've never seen anything that you have to go and see two parts. It's just, it's the whole thing is unlike what you expect from a theater experience. It's, It's hard to compare it to anything else because it's working on such different sort of beats it's the practical effects thing was so fascinating and i really i really really wish that um neil in particular could see this oh because i saw neil give a really fascinating talk at the edmonton comic expo a couple of years ago neil gave this fascinating history of london theatrical productions and the sort of fascination in victorian era london theater with increasingly sophisticated practical effects being reproduced on stage and sort of pushing the edge of what you can do with theatrical technology but the most amazing effect that you could do on stage in the victorian era was set something on fire because there was a very real risk that you would burn the theater down and kill everyone i mean the Again, I, I I keep like feeling like I have to apologize for spoilers, even though we've already. Put we'll put the sound effect in again. <laughs> but there was some pretty extreme fire going on. Yeah, like they save it for the climax, yeah. right? Like the climax scene where, if you've read the script, it's the sort of showdown in the church where they are fighting the augury, and the magic spells in that scene, and it's really one of the only scenes where we see magic happening like, like things happening with wands yeah, yeah yeah like that sort of harry potter like z- i'm gonna zap you yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all done with fire which was such an interesting choice yes and looked quite extremely dangerous yeah yeah, yeah. the only really very kind of high-tech trickery mm-hmm. which i was just when I knew it was coming for the first time, I was just like literally watching you, not the stage, is when they do the time turner effect, which yeah. I still don't, I've seen that several times now and I don't, don't really understand yeah. what's <laughs> happening there. I think I it's just light. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I really so, don't. so the effects are done primarily via um, trap doors, lighting effects. Um, there's very, very minimal use of projections. Mm-hmm. It's quite old school in the sense of there's a lot of use of just things on stage that extras come on and move those things around and now they're a different room and you just see the people, somebody in a cloak comes in and moves the thing and now it's a different room. 
yeah so the for example the time turner effect is like when they go back in time there's this sort of pulse or ripple thing that happens that i am fairly sure is just light right well i mean it it must be but it's incredibly impressive and the most i'm sure there's a lot of high-tech stuff going on behind the scenes but it's the only kind of like ooh technology sort of effect that you've got because i realized as well the scene i didn't notice this um when i saw it before because i was sat further back but um the scene where draco and harry are fighting Mm -hmm. They're being picked up by people dressed all in black. I didn't see that. I assumed it was wires. I think maybe some of it is wires, but there was one where Harry gets picked up that I saw the person retreat. And I was like, it's literally there's people dressed all in black, like picking them up. It's so old school. Like obviously it's executed flawlessly. Quite. And they do actually some... Harry does a like a blinding spell mm-hmm. and it's literally you see someone with black gloves like put their hands like in front of Draco's eyes. Yeah. So there's this really fascinating way that um, rather than go because they could have afforded to do every high tech computerized thing in the world. But a lot of the time they're doing things that you can see. Um, my favorite example was the way that often to make things disappear um, like props that weren't necessary anymore a bunch of, you know, unnamed wizards would come on and swoop their cloaks over those things and make them disappear like a magic show. Yeah. It's it's fun. They are doing a very conscious nod to the fact that it's a show about magic. Yeah. yeah. It's and- sort of drawing on this this dense history of theatrical magic. You know, there is already a vocabulary for showing magic on stage, right. which is magic shows. And rather than trying to make what they're doing something different they're really sort of embedding it in that that theatrical tradition which is all as well again it's rooted in the fact that this is obviously this was conceived as a piece of theater everything is about that yeah which i hope like soothes some of the cynicism of people like it's so it's just beautiful yeah the score was remarkable yeah. yeah, so the music's all done by Imogen Heap, which is a really interesting choice. And the music is very Imogen Heap-y. Like, at times there's even samples of her existing songs. Mm-hmm. But the score is, and again, this is, again, a bit of a tangent, but I'm guessing we're going to talk about the the movement. Because even though it's in no way a musical, there's some very highly choreographed, almost dance dancing moments and again this is the thing that there's not even i don't think there's even a reference in the in the script to it even happening Mm -hmm. you know at the beginning of the second part there's this quite extended incredibly sinister scene where death eaters are they still called death eaters in the alternate anyway i'm not sure it's it's it yeah it's in the sort of the the third alternate timeline where voldemort is reigning and there you sort of come back after the break or for some people the next day and it's sort of reimmersing you it's like okay now you're in this dark reality when you come into the theater the Voldemort banner is hanging and then the opening scene is this stunning choreographed dance scene of a good few minutes it's like a solid it's not just them entering it's a a real scene and there's swooshing cloaks and like this really like intense marching they do this very like kind of rigid it's beautiful yeah. to watch, but I don't think there's even a reference to, I think it literally starts with just the first bit of dialogue. And there are so many moments like that. Like one of my favorite moments is when they are looking for Scorpius and Albus in the Forbidden Forest and 
the sides of the stage move out to become trees mm-hmm. and they all have their wands lit and they're just searching like and they're moving organically and then the music kind of changes and they move their wands just like in time with the music and it's it's so beautiful but there's not even a ref there's not even a line no. it's like they look for scorpius and albus yeah. in the forbidden forest and there's so many moments that are just profoundly beautiful to watch yeah. that just, there's just nothing it's not even a reference to them in the script yeah a whole aspects of particular characters too that like it was so confusing to me why um do you remember the name of the actor who played hagrid in the sorting hat uh chris jarman chris jarman yeah so he you know he's listed as um when you come in and they sort of have the today's cast he's listed as the sorting hat and other characters um, and Hagrid is, in fact, just a sort of side character of his because they make him as the sorting hat into this sort of omniscient, magical figure who reappears in multiple scenes, often as a sort of unspeaking commentator on the action. And the moment that really struck me is the moment when uh, in the sort of third timeline, when uh, Snape casts his Patronus mm-hmm. And it's the deer, and the effect is Chris Jarman as the Sorting Hat, dressed in his yeah. Sorting Hat costume, which is a suit and a bowler hat, which I freaking loved, um, holding this sort of Patronus prop, which is just the deer's head, literally lit on fire. Um, and he's just moving it around. And there was something, I was about to say, I'm probably reading too much into this, but there's no such thing. There's something about, you know, how Snape is treated as one of the examples of what happens when you sort too soon Mm -hmm. and when you sort of tell people they're one kind of person and there's they have these capacities to be different kinds of people and snape as this sort of you know the slytherin villain who turns out to have this tremendous capacity for heroism and the fact that in that moment of his heroism um when you see you know his patronus is what's inside of him what he's capable of um the fact that it's the sorting hat that holds it it's just like, I know it's, and do you know what, when I said I got goosebumps, I wasn't even thinking about that bit. <laughs> I was thinking about the bit where they go to Godric's hollow for the first time and he just emerges. And again, yeah. so hard to explain. And this, I guess this is why it's not in the script. It's really hard to explain <laughs> it in words, but it starts snowing mm-hmm. as they emerge in Godric's hollow. And he comes and he does this beautiful, like balletic kind of hand movement and spreads some of the snow and he doesn't say anything. And it's just, it's beautiful. We need to talk about Snape because, right, I think most of the characters are true to the books. I think Snape, the way Snape is written, has been influenced by the way the fandom sees him Mm -hmm. in a way that none of the other characters are. Mm -hmm. Because Snape is the Snape almost of the fandom. Yeah. Because Snape has become this thing that maybe isn't actually in the books. But he is, yeah. the, I think, in the yeah. state in the play, he's kind of that Snape. Yeah, yeah. He is heroic and brave, and there's none of the, you know, in the books, he's just he's so mean and awful, and he, it's not that's not there. Yeah, yeah. I had a, an interesting conversation with Rochelle yesterday, when she was she was saying that she recalled as a sort of young reader finding Snape fascinating and being really drawn to him, and. I also remember finding him fascinating and we were talking about the history of um, gothic heroes Mm -hmm. and the sort of the trope, the beauty and the beast, the, you know, 
Rochester, the Heathcliff, the the trope of the hero who who is um, monstrous on the surface, but has a capacity to be saved, and who specifically needs to be saved by a beautiful white woman. And how when you are a young girl reader, often for you, those are the only roles you get to imagine yourself into. That's the form of heroism that's available to you is to save a man and make the world better by virtue of writing the patriarchal order and restoring everything to sort of the way it ought to be. And I think that is a big part of what Snape is to the fandom. That Snape is that gothic hero. There is something really beautiful and moving about the, that capacity for redemption. Um, that is why I hate Snape of the books. But God damn, if I didn't cry for him in this fucking play. He's used so well. He's yeah. in such a small part of it that it lets him be what you want Snape yeah. to be because he's in such a... Yeah. He's in such a small part of it. And yeah. it's really the moment yeah. they're very clever with the way they introduce mm-hmm. characters. Yeah. And again, huge spoiler, but there's the moment where Dumbledore first appears is I, it wasn't quite as extreme when I first saw it. I saw a preview and no one knew anything. And there was like a theater wide like gasp when Dumbledore, yeah. he walks onto an empty stage And then the portrait frame comes down over him. But there is this moment. He does some magic first too. Right. Oh, he, it's after the trees have come out, isn't it? He like waves the trees away and it's just him on the stage. He walks forwards and then just very quietly the portrait comes down and you, but they're so clever with the way they introduce characters like Snape and Dumbledore Mm -hmm. who aren't on the cast list. And they, there, it's a moment. Yeah. You know, when Snape, like he's behind the chalkboard and it comes around and, there's so much love for those characters and recognition of the way that readers feel about them they give them they give them a moment the moment with snape where so you see him and his backs to you and he's standing in front of the chalkboard writing a very the probably the closest thing to a version of a magical chalkboard that looked like a real lesson that i better than anything in the movies um and then he turns around and he's old Mm -hmm. because he is old now right and and that so I, here's here is why I am convinced by the Snape of the play rather than the Snape of the books. Snape of the books dies before he ever really has to prove himself. Mm-hmm. Really. I mean, I know I mean, everybody. Sorry. Sorry. In in preparation. Hello, Twitter. Please yell at me for five years now. Future people are going to be listening to this in a decade and come back. Come find me wherever I am and yell at me about this. But he he dies in the heat of things. Mm-hmm. There's a line when Scorpius says to Draco in, again, the third timeline, um, that he says he feels like we were all tested and we all failed. But Snape was tested, like really, really tested. Like Dumbledore's not in power anymore. Harry Potter has died. You failed. You are released from your promises. You could just lean into this. He was tested and he passed. Like he... He has stuck with this his entire life, far past it being glamorous, far past it being urgent. Right. Do you know, and that also makes me think that for all of our dismissiveness of the script, it's not like, it's not, there's some beautiful moments. Like that line is gorgeous. And the line that really gets me is when Dumbledore echoes, you know, he says to Harry the first time we see him, he Mm -hmm. says, you know, you can't ask me for advice. I'm just paint and memory. But then when you see him in the next part... He says, you know, some things endure like paint and memory. And oh my goodness, like, I think there was obvious issues with the script, but there are 
some beautifully done scenes and there were some gorgeous lines and and I feel like I just want to make it clear that I (laughs) I do like a lot about the script (laughs) even though I have some issues with it Jesus Christ we need to talk about the guy who plays Harry what's his what is his name Parker I mean I guess he's I guess he is a famous London he has like he has a definite like cult following which I wasn't aware of him before this but then when I mean I'm like wary to even talk about him in a way that's gonna go public because I just have a huge crush on him and it's so hot it's absolutely outrageous how sexy Harry is in this play I'm so glad that you felt that too because I feel like I like tweeted that the first time I saw it and, but you have to see it and also again he's just wearing this he's just wearing this three-piece suit and he just keeps putting his hands in his pockets and I was like ah it just works and he's so great also then sometimes he cries and it's just you know the whole cumulative effect is just a lot he just (laughs) cries and cares about his children a lot and wears a three-piece suit and it was just such a great suit anyway the costuming in the entire thing was just spectacular as as would be anticipated but um yeah we should talk he's a great actor (laughs) the thing with the script and the actors is when you read the script there are clunky lines and you just think how could that possibly not be incredibly embarrassing to watch someone perform that <laughs> but this the cast is uniformly e- like excellent yeah. like they're superb and they sell 99 percent mm-hmm. of the clunky lines yeah. and you not just sell like you are there and it's incredibly impressive you can forgive so much when yeah. you're seeing it being performed by such such talented actors yeah you know, I loved I loved Harry. I remember in my reading of the script feeling disappointed with Ginny's role. Right. Um, and Ginny is splendid in it. And a, a really interesting part of it is the way um, she is very, very frequently on stage but not speaking. Right. And she's always there while our sort of three adult protagonists are talking and having drama and figuring things out and fighting and blah, blah, blah. And Ginny's just there and then at the very end of the play she talks to harry about her experience of being a lonely child and how she felt lonely watching them have these friendships Mm -hmm. and so there is something really beautiful about the way that you see she's still there she is fundamental to everybody's well-being and the relationship between harry and Ginny is very convincing Mm -hmm. and again the actors are so good like they sell it so well and again Ginny is one of those characters that I can absolutely see if you read the script. Mm-hmm. Like, because a lot of the dialogue when you're not seeing the performance, you kind of think, oh, like the line about her being the editor of the sports pages. You're like, oh, it's just a throw. It's like a nod. It's just saying like, Ginny's there. She has a real job. But there's so much more going yeah. on on the stage. And she's she has, she's got like a, she's very fierce. I'm wary of like using kind of cliched words yeah. about her being like a fierce mom. But yeah. she's she's very good. And like, there's a sort of very real strength to her that the actress really makes very clear physically Mm -hmm. when you see her on stage Mm -hmm. around other people yeah why is the new sleep number 360 smart bed your answer to better health and wellness it's proven quality sleep any more questions yes i'm always freezing and he overheats it's temperature balancing so you can sleep better together but can it help keep us asleep 
senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 smart bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. I really liked the, um, it's such a sort of little stage convention, but they like color-coded the protagonist. So Harry's always in dark blue and Ginny's in green and Ron is in orange and Hermione's in purple. And I loved, loved Hermione in purple. Hermione in purple is like the queen of the wizarding world. Just so regal, so powerful, so effortlessly authoritative in a way that's like what happens when a bossy little girl finally gets to run shit she just steps into that power and no one's money is glorious as hermione just glorious i i think um again the first time i saw it in previews um this moment is lost now the show has been out and everyone knows what happens Mm -hmm. when no one knew no one knew that hermione was minister for magic that was like a moment no one had read the the script wasn't out it hadn't been mentioned before and literally i nearly burst into tears and it's easy to forget when that's just now such common knowledge yeah but watching that as a as a woman and who'd grown up with hermione there's this moment when it's just referred to and the whole theater was just like (gasps) like it was incredible it was such a powerful moment and i interviewed noma um and she was saying that she hadn't really realized the power of that moment, but in all the previews, every audience reacted like that. And she was like, wow, this is important. But like, yeah, imagine like hearing that and not knowing yeah. that that was coming. Cause in hindsight, of course she's the minister yeah. for magic, yeah. but it, it was such a moment. I, I've been thinking about that. I, I had like it entirely, you're right. Like I read the script and I'd forgotten it was a surprise. And some people have um, expressed to us that they are disappointed that both um, Hermione and Harry ended up working in government. But I feel like in the wake of the recent American election, when we all watch what happens to a woman when she tries to be in a position of power, um, I mean, ice, but like, it's been it's been a few months now. And I feel like I have sort of like numbed over a bit. But like the first week after that election, as I thought over and over again about what had happened to Hillary Clinton and what had happened to all the little girls who were watching her. And I just cried every day. I just every time I was like, oh, my God, people hate women so much. And I just cried about it every day and getting to see Hermione Granger grow up and be Minister of Magic and not like nobody is treating her like shit because she's a woman it's that is that is a that's what i want in my fantasy worlds exactly it's it's so powerful also just on a more like logistical it's not like we're presented with lots of job options in the (laughs) harry potter world like if they're not working for the ministry like or the daily profit like what are there's not or hogwarts Hogwarts. there's not a huge amount of other jobs that we are aware of and so like just logistically like what else would they do (laughs) just from a narrative perspective it's Mm -hmm. it's the only option is to put Mm -hmm. them in things that are established we understand how these places work we can picture them there we're not having to suddenly deal with this whole new working environment like also it puts them physically yeah puts Hermione and Harry physically in the same place which is useful I like their dynamic I love the dynamic between the main three it felt very true as 
friends who have gone through an awful lot and they've all grown as adults it just it was very they have such great chemistry yeah. don't they on stage yeah, they really do oh speaking of performances oh we need God. to talk oh, how to talk. good the main three are because yeah. they're playing these like quite intense adult roles yeah and then there's uh the scene where delphi alpus and scorbius take the polyjuice potion and turn into ron harry and hermione and so of course you have noma dumaswani paul thornley and jamie parker playing the kids as yeah. themselves and that's when you realize well who's like say it's like when you realize how good um Helena Bonham Carter is in the film you yes. realize how good someone is when they're yeah. acting acting yeah. they are when, so good when, when they're when Jamie Parker is being Scorpius and tells Albus that he's been a really terrible yeah. son and he needs to go to his room right away it's just you think you fancy yeah. Jamie Parker as yeah. Harry and then you see him act as Scorpius who yeah. is like the best character in the whole thing and it's just like <laughs> too much (laughs) okay so the final original series character we need to talk about is draco um and we need we we do need to reference so we looked up the name of the actor who played draco in our performance james James howard okay who is a cover and it's normally alex price who i have seen the other two times Mm -hmm. who's who was brilliant but yeah well So James James Howard I, was one absolutely wonderful. He, he was great. Yeah, but um, he is also <laughs> objectively super hot. Really <laughs> sexy. It was very like he was very manly. Uh, I mean, very very moving. His scenes with Scorpius frequently made yeah. me cry. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. But there is this line towards the end where Draco says, um, I'm getting bossed around by Hermione Granger and I'm kind of liking it. And I was like, that's the hottest line in this entire play. Right. And it's, when I've seen it before, it's like, it has got a frisson, but it's like, it's funny. Whereas when he said it, it was a bit like, oh my goodness. Like, whoa. (laughs) The scenes between Draco and Harry were also really, really remarkable. Watching the way so much of their history played out across their relationship as adults and that even though they were sort of on opposite sides of the battle when it happened it's playing out in their lives in the same way it's just this weight that they can't get past and that has continued to sort of um pressure their their fraught relationships with their children like they're both really struggling to be dads because they had either no fathers or incredibly abusive fathers and don't know how to move beyond that and um i loved i loved the the interplay between the two of them that it was so much more subtle than sort of we're enemies it was like we share this fundamental set of experiences that now that we're not on opposite sides of a political struggle we actually have more in common than anything else So those are the the new people. Let's talk. Let's just. Do you want to talk about Scorpius first? Well, I mean, because <laughs> otherwise we're just going to be saving him for last. But I want. I think <laughs> I I want to hear what you have to say because you know, fresh. You've seen it for the okay. first time. I because I knew yeah. I knew how great the actor was, yeah. and I had seen his performance before, yeah. and I knew that you were going to love him. Yeah. Okay. So what's the actor's name? Uh, Anthony Boyle. Anthony Boyle. Okay. The voice. The first... You know the actor is Irish. No. Yeah, in real life, he's Irish. And probably doesn't have that particular I, inflection. I would assume not, because <laughs> I don't think... Yeah. The inflection is this sort of, like, a little bit like a teenager whose voice is breaking, a lot of sort of very high-pitched modulations. Um, it read to me... His performance read to me as, like, he... He played Scorpius so queer in 
the best way. He's um, like he's funny and charismatic and vulnerable and goofy and just like heartbreakingly weird. Like just this amazing, amazing kid who doesn't fit in to the world around him at all, who like weirds out his dad, who weirds out his teachers, who weirds out everyone who meets him because he's like desperate for love and totally incapable of hiding how he feels about anything and just heartbreaking. It's, it's incredible to watch. Also, he is on stage probably the most of all the characters, I think. It didn't occur to me before that he's kind of the protagonist, but he's kind of the protagonist. I would say Scorpius is. He's he's on stage an awful lot and he kind of carries that whole, there's that whole section in the alternate world where we're seeing it through his eyes. Yeah, well, he's the the protagonist. You know, I was thinking again of the conversation we had about, um, that Marcel and I had about the title, The Cursed Child, and who that, like, there's... There's aspects of the play that certainly seem to tell us that the cursed child is um, the augury. What's her actual name? Delphi. Delphi. You know, particularly the image of the child in a nest, Mm -hmm. which really suggests because the augury is the bird. And so it suggests that that's her. But sort of watching it, I was like, oh, I get it. They're all cursed children. Like, (laughs) this is absolutely everybody. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like Scorpius as this child who has grown up with this sort of horrifying um, story being told about him. And who has responded to that by just being so weird, <laughs> by just like, like, um, and he gets to be sort of this truth teller figure as a result, right? That he doesn't really care what people think about him anymore. And so he just says yeah. whatever matters. And that, you know, he continues to play that role in the third timeline where it gets him into trouble, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it, that's another thing that sort of gives him the special role in the play is that he's he is like almost like a sort of clown figure right. in the like in the Shakespearean sense like like the wild the, like this like the wise fool yeah in exactly. him and he's physically as well kind of gently clowning although mm-hmm. he's not sort of it's yeah. not like he's falling over in funny ways yeah. but yeah. just but his, his body language is so like he's very long limbed yeah. and there's a lot of sort of big arm and leg movements and a lot of sort of theatrical slumping and yes but also like little things like he often like has his ankles like at a slightly awkward angle and just brilliant the character is brilliant and then the actor is just extraordinary he he just won an olivier award for for being good at acting uh yes um and so did no madame's money and so did jamie parker they are very good. <laughs> They're very good. That's my critical opinion. <laughs> very good at acting. That's gonna be. That's gonna be on the poster. <laughs> great at acting. <laughs> oh, stellar review. Uh, okay, Scorpius, brilliant. Albus, um, I think the actor is very good and does a very like quietly touching performance. And I think the scenes between Albus and Harry are beautiful Mm -hmm. and again quite quite a lot yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, he does a great sullen teenager i think because those scenes between him and harry are so well done and you become convinced that there really is something broken in that relationship that that's really really not working and that you know when he 
tries to reach out to his father his father behaves very very badly so the sullenness then feels earned right i mean that line i think again that's a great example of when you read on the script like harry yelling at his son well i wish you weren't my son and you think how that's a ridiculous thing for a father to say like how could but then it's such a horrible and powerful moment it's oh it's horrible to watch and like both of them just sell it so you can completely yeah. believe how Harry has got to a point where yeah. he would say that, which doesn't excuse it at yeah. all. But it's believable that they've reached that point. Yeah. It doesn't feel like melodrama. Yeah, No, it doesn't. It actually reminded me really viscerally of the screaming fights I used to have with my mom, which I, I struggle to remember what we actually fought about because mm-hmm. it's not the content. It's the experience of being a right. teenager and struggling against a parent with whom you have a right. highly charged relationship. And I remember having screaming fights and no idea what we fought about i just remember the feeling like the two actors are physically they're right up in each other's faces they're incredibly close to each other it's really like when harry says that line he screams it into albus's face from an inch away it's it's slightly terrifying so so tell me about your your experience of watching delphi sort of evolve over the three performances so I think Delphi is a tough character. I think that new characters are always going to be hard. And then when they're a villain, it adds an extra level of sort of just difficulty in introducing that character. The actress who plays Delphi is physically very small. Mm-hmm. And the first time I saw it, the the issue was that she wasn't scary enough. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a physical scariness. I think the actress is doing a lot with what she's got and the, also the character has a lot of exposition mm-hmm. and that is tough to sell she's yeah. trying to be sinister and scary and she has this monologue explaining what's going on yeah. and it's really hard for that to have any menace because it's like it's really explainy yeah and i just noticed in this one that they have either either the actress has made this decision or they've decided sort of the producers have decided that her she's physically a lot more sinister so she's a lot more when she takes albus and scorpius she's a lot more like she's up in their faces and she touches albus a lot and they really play on that fact that albus has a crush on her and she really like manipulates that in a really genuinely sinister way you know she touches his face and she's very close to him and that wasn't really there the first time that it made a huge difference Mm -hmm. to how sinister Delphi was but I still think there are issues with that character and I felt like at the end that whole thing with her wanting to meet her father I I feel like they struggled a little bit I kind of wanted them to go more that she has more of a redemption I kind of wish they kind of made her more like out and out properly evil which I know you want nuance but she's not scary enough I don't think to be properly evil but equally if they're gonna go with the like she just wants to know her father I kind of wish they'd gone more with that because it's not it's not enough at the end I didn't really you don't empathize with her enough and I kind of wish they just committed one way or the other yeah made her more sinister and a proper villain or like actually really explored Mm -hmm the impact of her childhood a bit more because that kind of just comes out at the end and it's impossible to really empathize too much because it's kind of just blurted out in a awkward exposition speech at the end yeah Yeah, you like the point is supposed to be she is also a lonely child look what loneliness does to children like this is the thing that they are telling us across the board draco basically has a monologue where he explains the theme of the play and the theme of the play is it is incredibly lonely sometimes being a child and that lonely children can go in dark directions and that you know when when delphi sort of has her explanation this is why i'm bad and harry says like meeting your father won't undo it you can never undo those years of being an orphan which then resonates back to his anger at dumbledore 
at leaving him alone for 11 years mm -hmm. and then bringing him in later, which is like, you actually can't undo the damage you did to me right. of 11 really, years of loneliness. Right. And they really like, they really deal with that. And Dumbledore deals with that. Dumbledore has a few lines that are kind of like, they're kind of funny, but oh, like yeah. he makes like lines about like, he refers to like, bad advice that he gave Harry and some of them are kind of played for laughs yeah. but they're really like Dumbledore really acknowledges that yeah. maybe the way he did it was not the right not. way to do it yeah. one of the things that is specific to the experience of going to the theater is that unlike reading a book or watching a movie I mean you can watch movies with other people <laughs> you the distinct thing is that there are 1300 other people in the room with you having audible reactions right, right? this is a big theater yeah. like it's four tiers there are yeah 1300 yeah. people in there it's it's a big it's a there's a lot of us yeah and, and small seats. you're really aware that there's <laughs> other people there <laughs> just pressed right up against everybody around you and there are moments like like wonderful moments like that right so the example um, that we both remembered was when in the third timeline you find out that the way that Cedric surviving changed everything is that at the Battle of Hogwarts Cedric killed Neville and when that's revealed oh, there's yeah. like this ripple of like <laughs> yeah it's amazing it's yeah. amazing that's the do you know that's the only moment that all three times there's been exactly the same reaction oh, interesting. because like I said you know there was a couple of moments where like that happened with Hermione mm -hmm. But that's so known. And I think that that's, it's almost like a throwaway line. Yeah. And it, you kind of, you would be affected by it in the script, but it's, it's great. I was waiting for it because yeah. I just, and I also feel like there was someone quite close to us who was having very audible reactions to everything. There like, sure like was, yeah. laughing and gasping and like, yeah. they were just living, like yeah. <laughs> having the time of their lives. Yeah, yeah. It was 18-inch girl. It yeah. was joyous though. Like, because I think there's a performative element to being an audience mm -hmm. and you do kind of verbalize reactions in a way that you, like if you were by yourself. I've never gasps out loud while reading a book. Oh, I definitely have. <laughs> <laughs> I do all the yeah. time. And actually it irritates my husband frequently because oh. he thinks something horrible has happened. And I'm like, no, no, sorry, just in the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you do. And I think it's particularly with laughing. I think. Yeah, we laugh more when there are other people right. around. You know, it might yeah. be something that you would smile at, but you know, you laugh because you're in this group setting. Yeah. So you know, sometimes those reactions sort of resonate with you and amplify your own experience. But there was this moment where the reaction of the audience was so at odds with my own reading, which was, um, it's, I think, the final scene. Uh, Harry and Albus are in the graveyard and Harry is confessing to Albus his many fears, right? He says, you think that I'm Harry Potter and I'm not afraid of anything, but I'm actually afraid of everything. And he says, I'm afraid of the dark. And that line, like when I read it and then watching the way that Jamie Parker performs it, that line is like, I am so broken by what happened to me. Like, I will never be better. I'm not a hero. I'm not this flawless Gryffindor. I am so scared all the time. I am so flawed. And I was, I cried when he said that line, I'm afraid of the dark. And I was just like, no, Harry. And the audience laughed. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think people have laughed at that point when I've seen it before. But I have a constant frustration with audiences laughing yeah. in the wrong place. And I feel like, not that, uh, it's all subjective. There's yes, no such yes, thing as laughing yes. in the wrong place. But sometimes there is. Yeah. And sometimes you shouldn't laugh. Yeah. And it is strange to yeah. me. Yeah. That was a weird moment, wasn't yeah. it? Like. Yeah. 
it was so jarring and it was so like I guess it's just the experience of being present simultaneously experiencing a text and a text sorry we just call everything texts um and actually being able to experience in real time somebody else reading it differently from you and how like when you read that happens after the fact that happens when you sit down and talk about it and are like oh you read that like this oh I read that like this but to actually be like everything has culminated in this like this quiet exchange between these two characters who have been at each other's throats for the whole play and are now like Harry's now finally really opening himself up he's doing what jenny told me had to do and showing albus a really specific love yeah, and that's a lovely it's so again, that's a wonderful one yeah yeah, yeah i'm i feel like i'm like i have nothing like no like caught in this script but i am feeling yeah. really guilty about like <laughs> there's some really nice bits too there are some but, wonderful lines yeah, and that's that, a wonderful line yeah. and but it's interesting because obviously it's valid that we all like we all read things differently yeah. but when you're seeing a play Jamie Parker is making very specific decisions and it I think why it jars is because his performance is hard to read as funny his performance seems very obviously like powerful and sad and that's why it's jarring that people laugh because yeah on the page you could read it however you want but there's a very specific performance choice going on right in front of you it took me out of it out of the moment in a very particular way which is to say I stopped thinking of that person as Harry and started thinking of that person as Jamie Parker and was like, fuck everybody in this room. You all just responded wrong. Like, he is up there. He is like wearing his heart on his sleeve. Yeah, I want- I'm crying, Jamie. I'm crying. I see, I see what you're doing. I understand you. I was just about to say something really inappropriate. But. <laughs> yeah, my head also went there. Um, <laughs> now put your hands in your pockets I was again. Just about to say exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it's just—it's a—it's a great suit. Yeah, it's really—it's just a. The thing is, it's a great suit. Is the thing. Look, oh my goodness! Speaking of good performances and the audience being annoying, the bit where they stand. So when they watch mm-hmm. Harry's parents be killed the main characters are all lined up at the very front of the stage because yeah. Voldemort has walked through the audience yeah. and they are what looking up as if it's happening behind us. Yeah. And the audience kept like turning around as if like you could see like Lily Potter being murdered at the back of the theatre. And I was like, no, watch the, no. They're looking as if it's happening, but we're watching them. They're yeah. performing. And people were just like, oh, oh, like straining around. I'm like, yeah. there's nothing happening behind there. But the performances were... When he like breaks down oh, and cries, that okay. So that moment—that's an incredible moment. We talked about this in our episode about the script, but that moment of being called upon to bear witness—that mm-hmm. Harry's sort of being brought back and bearing witness to his own originary trauma—and that we, as an audience, are being called upon to bear witness. The friends are all there to bear witness with him, and they stand by him, and they all watch. But we don't like that's the point. Like people are craning around because they want to watch what these actors are watching, but we don't get to see it. We have to witness them witnessing. And so what we have to look at is like when he breaks down in that scene, he shatters. And all of those actors make such 
incredible choices there. Like, you know, like Scorpius is quite stoic. And then he just, that moment where he turns around and Draco just like wraps him up. Like, oh. also I, okay. It's only the second time they've hugged in the play and it's so beautiful. It's just, it is Draco and Scorpius. That relationship is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this comes with the proviso of, I never really believe JK Rowling when she says she's done with Harry Potter. Okay. But I actually, the end of that play mm. does feel like it's, you know, you read the books and there was that epilogue and you could tell that she wasn't done with those characters also because she will not shut up about the characters. <laughs> but actually it was so much more final. The end of that play is like, yeah. it feels a lot like this is the end of these yeah. characters' stories. Like we've yeah. checked in on them and they are, essentially they're gonna be okay yeah and coming full circle on the way the book begins it feels like the actual end of the harry potter and again i don't like (laughs) she obviously but i could see you didn't get that feeling that you get at the end of the epilogue where yeah there was a level of closure i think well and there was that you know that frustration uh with the epilogue in the way that it suggested so strongly that history was going to repeat itself, that the same old animosities were still there, that the world had returned to exactly the same way it had always been. And there's something about the way that the play ends that suggests the possibility for something new. And it's that, you know, it's going to be a beautiful day. Yeah, that there is potential and a potential that's really nascent in Albus and Scorpius's relationship there's potential for something actually different. One of the standout things for me was that so much of what is remarkable is the stuff that's happening around the edges of the dialogue, the sort of physical motion, the unspoken glances, the, you know, things like that, that, that I think also really do like, you know, maybe go back and reread the script and spend more time thinking about I mean, this is actually when you teach theater how you do it, right? Spend more time thinking about where people would be in relation to each other, how people, you know, in this scene, how would these two characters be, you know, would they be close together? Would they be far apart? How's this person feeling while they're overhearing this thing? You know, they're on stage. Like, if if you were feeling disappointed in the script, I would sort of encourage you to go back and think about it again as a script and think about all of the other you know if you were going to stage it what would it look like if you were going to imagine a performance of this line that sold it what would that performance be also put on an image and heap album whilst you read it and that's not even a joke because the music is you can tell it's being composed by image and heap and the music is incredible i am sure they will release the soundtrack the the score at some point Yeah. yeah Yeah, it is incredible. And then eat a tiny tub of ice cream and you're there. Right. Yeah. Sorted. <laughs> you know, get a cast picture up on your laptop. You know, yeah. imagine some of those actors. We got a good picture of Harry in, in a suit. What is this world? What is this? I can't believe I fancy Harry Potter. Like, what is happening? This is as this is as hetero as this podcast has ever gotten. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I blame you. (laughs) On that note, thank you. Well, we'll just edit. Well, I'm going to take out 75 percent of the references to Harry Potter's suit. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back, witches. Marcel just 
we were having a little chat while you were listening to my conversation with Anna. And Marcel uh, just announced to me that she is part of the inebriati, which is a phrase I've never heard before, but fucking love. Just, you know what? Just YouTube inebriati. That's all you got to do. And I want you to know that I am part of it. It is time for the first of our two new segments. The first segment is not so much new as a new every episode feature. From now on, we will be doing a regular Witch Please Tell Me segment. So if you have a question about one of our episodes, about something in the Harry Potter world, about life, tweet at us with the hashtag Witch Please Tell Me. And we will choose our favorite question for every episode and uh, come at you with an answer in this segment. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be very like all over the place with the types of questions that we choose. So really don't feel like any question is too small or too big or too silly or too serious. We'll, we will go through them and whatever just strikes our little harpsichords, we will answer that question. Oh my god, you said strikes our little harpsichords and I just fell in love with you all over again. (laughs) Okay, and our second end of episode segment, and this is a new segment, is a segment we are calling Try Witches Tournament. In this segment, we are going to set you, our beloved listeners, a challenge. And if you complete that challenge, you can tweet it at us with the hashtag TryWitches. That's T-R-Y-W-I-T-C-H-E-S, TryWitches, to tell us what you accomplished. And we will give you shout outs on the episode. So the first challenge looking back a couple of weeks ago when we asked you to tell us what are some really hard things that you have survived or avoided doing this last semester because it was a really hard semester for everybody and you told us and it was amazing and you all just loved each other so much and gave each other so much support and it just made us cry a whole lot and we thought this would be a really good idea to do on the reg. So what we want to challenge you to do this time is do that thing that you have been putting off doing because you're scared to do it, but you need to do it, do it, and then tell us that you've done it. And we're going to tell you that you did a really good job because you did. You did a good job. That's a preemptive, that's a preemptive shout out to you for doing a good job because things are hard. I'm crying already. I have one. You know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to initiate the process in Vancouver to get gene tested to find out whether or not my mother's breast cancer was uh, genetic. Because that is something that I should have done maybe a decade ago, but I am absolutely terrified. And it involves a lot of negotiating medical systems, um, which I often find intimidating as a fat person. I know that I'm going to get possibly some bullshit from some doctors. Add to that the like trauma of having to revisit my mother's illness. I've been putting it off for a really long time, but I turned 33 today and it's time for me to do that scary thing. And so that's why I am I am pledging to this community that I am going to start to do whatever is necessary to actually get that testing done. You're going to do a really good job. In a similar vein, I'm going to tell my grandfather who has 
very late stages prostate cancer that I love him when I see him soon and I'm already crying because it's really hard to talk about feelings to my grandpa not because I don't love him but because talking to that generation of men about feelings is complicated and challenging and I love him very much and we're probably both gonna cry and everything is fine no you're crying stop it no nobody's crying shut up nobody's crying (laughs) no crying on birthdays all right, that's enough. That's en- that is enough out of both of us. We are looking forward to the rest of the season. We're so excited to be making episodes again. Thank you so much to everybody who has stuck with us through our much-needed hiatus. It's really helped to make this project that we love so much sustainable. We are delighted to say that we'll actually be back in two weeks with another episode. But until then, later, witches!